So Luke chapter 7, we begin at verse 36 as we give our attention to the inerrant, infallible word of God. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. But she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. May God add his blessing to this, his holy word. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, Winston Bosch came and preached a beautiful sermon here. 
Uh, I had to watch it later on, uh, on the recording. But it was a beautiful sermon on Christian friendship. If you were here, I'm sure you remember. In that sermon, among other things, he mentioned those holy kiss passages of the New Testament. And I think he rightly commented how many of us, for various reasons, would struggle with that level of demonstration of Christian love for one another. But those passages about a holy kiss, I don't think are the greatest passages about the greatest holy kiss that we see in Scripture. And by seeing the greater, we may in fact be helped with the lesser. I want to look this morning with you by God's help, with God's grace and help at Luke chapter 7, verse 36 onward. Such a beautiful passage as we come to the Lord's table this afternoon. Because in this part of the word of God, we have a scene set before us that by his grace will convict us. But also by his grace will encourage those who know their sin, but who more importantly know the Savior. Boys and girls, there are only two cases in the New Testament where we read of someone actually kissing the Lord Jesus. Only two. It may have happened more. I think it almost certainly did happen more. Not everything without exception that happened to Jesus is recorded in the Gospels. But there are only two times recorded when someone kissed the Lord Jesus. And I think it's a little sad that the first one that I'll mention is more well-known. It's the kiss of betrayal of Judas. I think if you would ask most people and even most Christians, who kissed Jesus in the Gospels? They'll say Judas right away. That's the example that they'll, that they'll think about right away. But, beloved, in beautiful contrast, the other time that we read of someone kissing the Lord Jesus in Scripture expresses the complete opposite sentiment to Judas. Because Judas's kiss was in contrast to his true heart attitude toward Jesus. But in Luke chapter 7, in the passage we've heard this morning, this woman's kiss comes from an overflow of her heart of love toward Jesus. Well, what was it that prompted this unashamed, uninhibited display of love? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 47, as he told Simon, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved 
much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Her kiss, in contrast with the kiss of Judas, this woman's kiss was a token of great love. And the key to that great love was this great reality. Jesus had forgiven her sin, which was great sin. And so in this passage, we see the key to love, don't we? Great forgiveness from a great Savior. Well, we might ask what made her such a great sinner. Verse 37, it simply says, when a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating, she went. Uh, That could describe all of us. We're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. But we get a little bit more of a sense of who this woman was in verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Again, there aren't too many details given there, but it's not hard to imagine what likely was the case. This was a woman in town with a past. She had, as we would say, a reputation. And everyone knew it. Obviously, it wasn't hard for others to see the greatness of her sin. But as what she saw herself as well, she certainly felt the weight of it, especially when that burden was taken from her by this Jesus who forgives sin. And so Luke chapter 7 here is a great sinner, the story of a great sinner receiving great forgiveness, who in response loves greatly. She kissed the Christ. She didn't stop kissing his feet. She kissed Jesus perhaps with with red lips that had kissed many others before. She wiped his feet with her long flowing hair and poured out perfume that may once have been the aroma of her of her past, her salacious past. She wet Jesus' feet with her tears, tears that Martin Luther called heart water. Tears that previously, perhaps alone, In her room, she may have shed before in the guilt and shame of her conscience. But now tears shed in the joy and gladness and love of being made clean. Ian Hamilton said the reason why this sinful woman lavished her affections 
so openly and extravagantly on the Lord was because she had a deep sense of the wonder of the forgiveness of sins. The reason we love our Savior so haltingly, so mutedly, is at heart because we have lost the sense of the wonder and the blessedness and the glory of the forgiveness of our sins. Is it one of those things that we've just heard so often? Forgiveness. That we've lost the wonder of it. This encounter of woman with Jesus so readily presents itself to us for us to consider our lives as well and to ask a simple question. Do I love Jesus much? Would we too fall at his feet and kiss him? Or is our love little? Samuel Rutherford, the Puritan pastor and theologian, is known to subsequent generations in the church as someone who, who wrote of his love for the Lord Jesus in ways that seem to us almost embarrassingly personal, embarrassingly profound in the language that he used. One writer said, reading the letters of Samuel Rutherford is to enter a world where love to the Lord Jesus Christ was the absorbing preoccupation. Writing to a lady in his congregation in 1637, he said, Christ is a well of life, but who knows how deep it is to the bottom? And oh, what a fair one, what an only one, what an excellent, lovely, ravishing one is Jesus. The writer said, such language, and vastly more importantly, such heart affection appears remote, perhaps even embarrassing to many Christians today. Neither our language about the Savior nor our discussions on the Savior give the impression that he is the love of our lives, the one we cherish and adore above life itself. Why are we such strangers to the unembarrassed love that so marked Rutherford's relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? And this woman's relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in the scripture. Well, it's the same issue, the same point. Do we realize how much we have been forgiven? It's really what it comes down to. And you know, practically for, for many, this is difficult We can think of people who were saved out of lives that in many ways were outwardly morally good. They were just good people. I know them. You know them. Neighbors, they aren't believers. They're very nice people. 
Nicer than us sometimes. Or I think especially of covenant youth. Children who grow up in the church, and that's a great blessing. It is such a great blessing, but there is a pitfall. You grow up learning the law of God, the Ten Commandments. You have them memorized. By God's grace, for many of you, you you grow up and you're good boys and girls. You're not perfect, you know that. But it's very easy for children and young people, youth in the church, it's sometimes easy for adults too. But children who have not known anything different, to look at the world, to read the newspaper, to see things in the media, to see what happens at school, or or if you're out in Ottawa, downtown somewhere, to look at things and say, look at those people. That's not me. Look at what they did. Look at how they're living. And it can present a challenge to us to appreciate the wonder and the depth and the beauty of the forgiveness of sins, our sins, and how much we have been forgiven if we're Christians. Not all sin is the same. Some people's lives have a grosser moral deformity than others. But all sin is sinful. Some sins are worse than others. But all sin is great sin in some respects. The early church father, Augustine, as he writes in his confessions, came to see the sinfulness of sin in his own life. Especially in something small and insignificant. And I think that's the helpful lesson. He looked back on his own life and saw things that were just seemingly small sins. And he saw the sinfulness of it that he would disobey God for something so little and so trivial. We carried off a huge load of pears, said Augustine, not to eat them ourselves, but to dump them out to the pigs after barely tasting it ourselves. Doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. Such was my heart, O God, such was my heart, which thou didst pity even in that bottomless pit. It's helpful for all of us to grow in our understanding of what Jeremiah Burroughs called the exceedingly sinfulness of sin. The exceeding sinfulness of sin. I want to just help us this morning by paraphrasing Question and answer 151 in the larger catechism, which which opens up for us from the scriptures how some sins, even the same sins in different circumstances, are actually made worse. 
to help us not just to look out into the world and say, they are so bad, but to like to be like this woman ourselves in Luke chapter 7 who know the sinfulness of our sin. The question is basically what makes some sins worse than others? And the answer fleshes out a number of things. We need to think about who is doing the sinning. Who is sinning? Are you an older person? More mature? Do you have a greater experience of grace? Are you known for your profession of faith? Do you have a position of authority or responsibility? Are you a guide or example to others? Adds to the sinfulness of sin. Goes on to have us think about who is the one sinned against. And of course it begins with God. There are no little sins because there is no little God to sin against. Didn't David come to that in Psalm 51? Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. When we sin against God, his attributes or his worship, when we sin against Christ and his grace or the spirit and his witness in our lives, when we sin against those in authority over us or those with whom we are in close relationship, when we sin against the saints, when we sin especially against weaker brothers or sisters, it adds to the sinfulness of our sin. Or the sin itself. Is it sin against a clear commandment? Are we breaking many commandments at the same time in what we're doing? Is the sin not only a sin conceived in my mind or conceived in my heart, but coming out actually in words or in actions? Have I done something in which there is no possible repairing of the damage done? Have I sinned against my own conscience? Against the warnings or discipline of parents? or state, or church? Has my sin been deliberate, willful, malicious, frequent, with delight, or after previous repentance for the same sin? Adds to the sinfulness of sin. It even goes on to speak about when and where we sin that can make sin more sinful. Sins on the Lord's day. Sins even in worship. Or sins in public. Where we give a bad example and witness of our Lord. Charles Spurgeon said, when we see sin for what it is, we see it is great. No matter who we are, this is the point Jesus is making. If we really knew how much we have been forgiven, we would be with the woman at his feet 
and not with the Pharisee looking down in unloving, unthankful pride. If you're someone this morning who has been forgiven much, you should be someone who loves much. And you should kiss the sun. What does it mean to kiss the sun? It's a fascinating, helpful study in Scripture. What does it mean to kiss Jesus? What do kisses mean in the Bible? Well, first, to kiss the sun is to submit to Christ as king. 1 Samuel 10, verse 1. Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Psalm 2, kiss the son, the king that has been installed in Zion. Jesus is Savior and Lord. And when we kiss him, we submit to his lordship. If you love me, keep my commandments. We love the law because we love the lawgiver and king. It also has a sense of worshiping Christ. Worshiping Christ. Kissing is seen negatively in idolatry in the Bible. Hosea 13 verse 2. And now they sin more and more and make themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver, all of them the work of the craftsmen. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Or when God says, I've reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed bound to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. See, it's a, it's a picture of worship as well. God is spirit, Jesus said in John 4, 24, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Do you know the word worship there in John 4 is from a Greek word whose root meaning means to come toward and kiss. One dictionary says the word properly means to kiss the hand toward, uh, extended toward someone in token of reverence. We worship. We submit to Christ as king. We worship Christ as God. But then, perhaps the most obvious to us, we love Christ as Savior. And this is this woman's kiss. It's a kiss of love. Genesis 27, 26. And his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. It's love. Greet one another with a kiss of love. That's the holy kiss, four times holy kiss. 1 Peter 5.14, a kiss of love. Holy love. We love him because he first loved us and sent his son as sacrifice for our sins. The father loves the son because he laid down his life. John 10.17 and we love him because we are the sheep for whom he died. Without this kiss of love, flowing from a forgiven heart, submission to the Lord as king and lawgiver, even worship of Christ as God would be formalism and legalism. 
To kiss Christ embodies the loving heart of worship. To love God in Christ is the heartbeat of the worship that we give. You remember when Jesus interacted with Peter after Peter betrayed the Lord? Jesus might have asked Peter, do you honor me as your king? Do you fear and worship me as your God? Both would be legitimate questions and truth. But Jesus chose to ask his sinful follower the same question he asks us all this morning. Do you love me? Do you love me? Boys and girls, that's a question even the young ones here. That's a question you can think about and you can answer by God's grace. Do you love the Lord Jesus? Again, Ian Hamilton said, how, can, how then can we begin to love him better? How can we love him more ardently, more extravagantly, and less self-consciously? There are no slick formulas. Simply this. Consider Jesus. Contemplate Calvary. Make the time and take the time to meditate on God's amazing grace to hell-deserving sinners. Beloved, whenever we come to God in worship, and especially this afternoon as we come to the table, flowing out of the mercy and grace of God in Christ's work on behalf of sinners, may we come echoing the words that we've already sung in Psalm 116, I love the Lord. I love the Lord. We don't say I'm perfect. I'm worthy to come in and of myself. Jesus was invited to dinner here. And that woman might have said, how could I ever go? How could I ever go to a table where Jesus is? The Holy One. The devil is glad to whisper into our ears, I know who you are. Who are you to come? May it be far from us that we be tempted to look around at other people in the spirit of the Pharisee here in Luke 7 and and look on others and say, Lord, do you know who's coming to you? But of course, the amazing thing is that Jesus does know. He knew everything about this woman. And he knows everything about you. And still he says, come. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy burdened. And I'll give you rest. He welcomes all who come in faith and repentance and love. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Paul said, of whom I am chief. Do you love Jesus? 
Again, Samuel Rutherford said, give Christ your virgin love. You cannot put your love and your heart into a better hand. And often as we still wrestle with sin, we say with Peter, in spite of our failings, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. We love Christ, though not having seen him, we love him. Imperfectly and inconsistently, but we do love him. But one day we'll see him. And seeing the Savior, our love will be perfected as we enter that glorified state. Only then will we love as he ought to be loved, as he deserves to be loved. We long for that day. Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish pastor, was also quite a poet. And in one poem called I Am Debtor, one stanza said, When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty not my own, when I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know. Not till then, how much I owe. Until that day, beloved, kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love.